Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Starting parentheses again, ending parentheses, comma, everyone, comma. Welcome to episode 32 of America's Watching the Footy, our round 13 by progress reports. We don't want to forget about the teams that aren't playing this round, even with all the other action that'll be going on. So we've got this episode just like we had for the teams on by last week. I am Benjamin Castle. I am Ethan Castle. We are coming to you live from South San Francisco, California. Live is a pretty loose term here. I mean, we're recording this together in person. Would be cool to have this aired live. We're speaking to you in real time and you get to hear it at a later time. That's that's the beauty of modern technology. Whew. Well, this is being recorded in front of a live studio audience consisting of one tabby cat. We don't need to kick the can down the road too much here with intro small talk stuff, especially considering that we like to be especially long-winded when talking about our own teams, which happen to make up a third of the teams that aren't playing this week. So here we go. Just like last week, we're going to do these in random order. We're going to spin the hypothetical wheel. The wheel has been spun for the first time. Everybody's clapping. It's just like every night at 7.30-something. Oh, boy. I think this is actually just like the home-and-away previews, where the Eagles are first up. Well, the West Coast Eagles, I mean, we've kind of ripped on them a lot. I'm trying to rip on them a little less because I don't want to jinx anything with Geelong playing them after the bye, but just to give you the facts, they're 1-11, they sit in dead last, they raised their percentage back over 50% this past round in a loss to Adelaide and ended a streak of seven straight 50-plus point losses. It's been a season of a lot of injuries, a lot of guys showing their age, a lot of dysfunction, and somehow one win over Collingwood. 1-11 makes sense to me. I just wouldn't think that it would be the Collingwood win. I would have thought it would have been North. Going into that, I felt pretty good about it until the news came in that, oh, they had to make 14 changes. Pretty much the entire team was in COVID protocols for one reason or another. I'm not sure how much of it was due to extra restrictions that were present in Western Australia, but they had to field five top-up players, and they still only lost to North by 15. After that, I thought, okay, the team can get inspired from this. They could take something from this. Maybe they could apply some of what worked in that game to the normal list, even if the top-ups were younger and probably had more run in them. Um, That was not the case. And when they beat Collingwood, really, Collingwood ended up beating themselves there. Looking back at the stats from that win, the Eagles kicked insanely accurately. They kicked 14-3 for that one. 
Collingwood kicked 10-14, and that was kind of the story. The Eagles did kick really well, but the Pies had way more opportunities and just couldn't make good on them. So if that's how I describe their one win this year, and I'm the Eagles fan in the room, yeah, it hasn't been great. Even then I thought, all right, it's clear that there was something that worked in that game. They could build off this, oh, Nick Natanui is out. He's been out since with a medial ligament injury in his knee. Timeline right now for him is three to four weeks. I really don't think it would have mattered much had he been in. He is an All-Australian at his peak, but he wouldn't have the team around him this year, even with some older pieces stepping up again as of late. Jack Darling being a whole lot better, finally rounding into goal-kicking form. Luke Shuey and Andrew Gaff still doing very well in the midfield, being big ground gainers. Hell, Tim Kelly has finally reminded people of why the Eagles wanted him when he left Geelong. Only took two-plus years. If you want to look for the positives in this team, you've got to look at their youngest players. And unfortunately, a couple of the most promising ones coming into this season never got the chance. Oscar Allen's foot injuries kept him out for the whole year. Same thing with top draft pick Campbell Chesser. There are a couple more established younger pieces in there. Jack Petrocelli at this point, I'd say, is pretty established. Didn't realize he's only 23. He's been a good run at times, though inconsistent. Inconsistency has been the story a lot for this team. Inconsistency in getting their best players out there. Inconsistencies in individual performances. When Petrocelli's at his best, he can be a really good extra ground gainer, a good mover, whether it's through the middle or on the wing. Seems like he's been used more through the middle. Alex Witherden has definitely shown some promise in the back lines, along with the more active older interceptors in Tom Barras, Jeremy McGovern, who's currently out with a back injury, Shannon Hearn, who just came back in. Connor West has been all right at times. Greg Clark turned 25 a couple weeks ago at this point. Mature age recruit, a hell of a tackler, had 10 this past game. I think that's a huge positive there. He'll need to be a focal piece going forward. When we're looking at the super young end of things, there's time for Bailey J. Williams and Callum Jamison to grow into their ruck roles, although I don't think they're ever going to be first-rate guys. I'm waiting for Harry Edwards to really break through. Isaiah Winder, though, has already had a breakthrough performance in that offensive slugfest against the Giants. He had three goals. Hasn't kicked any since, but hopefully the work that he did that game could be a blueprint for future success. Was good at ground ball gets, knew where to place himself just off big packs, and regardless of the rocks, that's a really valuable skill to have. Eagles have also been without Liam Ryan, who's still on the younger side for a portion of the year. He is one of many people listed as a test coming out of the bye. I mean, this list is pretty ridiculous at this point. Hopefully, Willie Rioli's back soon. He provided a big spark in the early going. His goal kicking was probably the single biggest positive for the Eagles in that win over Collingwood. You just have to look at this team thinking about three, four, five years down the line in terms of personnel and in terms of coaching, there needs to be something different. The system that Adam Simpson had in place when they won the flag was great then. It's predictable now. It's too complacent. And I'm really thinking at this point that the coaches have kind of lost the playing group. These guys are used to success. They just missed out on the finals last year. There was no reason in... January or February for anybody to think that they couldn't be back again, even once the injuries hit. You gotta still have that hope up, and it was never there to begin with. Nick Nat said, write us off before the season, and I see why. From your outsider perspective, I know that I took up a lot of time there, but 
What have you seen that's worked for the Eagles or that hasn't worked? Maybe in the context of this season, maybe looking longer term. I think the most frustrating thing, even with all the ins and outs, is that there really haven't been a lot of consistent individual performances. Patrick Nash from week to week at the start of the year looked really good, cooled off some since. I think the one thing you really look for for the rest of the season, you're not looking at wins and losses at this point. You're looking some at how do they play? You know, do they play hard? Do they play engaged? Do they have a style that they can run with for all four quarters? But I think the biggest question for them is just who can generate good performances week in and week out? Like if Isaiah Winder can give you three or four good games in a row, that's something to build off. That's it. I do think there are chances for this team to pick up a win still, maybe even two or three. Probably not going to be that many, but you do have a softer schedule down the stretch with the likes of Essendon. I'm still a little bit skeptical with Geelong making that trip out there. If I was a fan of any other team, I wouldn't question it at all. I would say, oh yeah, the Cats are going to take care of business, but... Also, out of the buy, I know that's been a trap for them in the past. I mean, I thought for a while that their best chances at a win were hosting Essendon round 15 and hosting the Crows round 21. Considering how they finished against Adelaide, there's promise going into that one, especially if they can get healthier by then. Or maybe you catch Hawthorne on the right day, round 18. Hawks are a team that can beat anyone. They're also a team that can lose to anyone. And we'll talk about Hawthorne more in their preview tomorrow and in their bye week capsule next week. But the Hawks are a team that have been entertaining because you never know what you're going to get out of them. Unfortunately for the Eagles, they don't get the Hawks like sandwiched between a couple of big games or something. So it's not really a trap game spot. You get them between the Crows and North. And also, unfortunately, Sam Mitchell knows Adam Simpson's system. He played his last year at the Eagles, played a full season in 2017, then was an assistant in their flag year in 2018. And I still think that it's going to be more another team losing than the Eagles winning. I do hope they win another game so that you can try to start the club song and the Twitter replies again and no one will pay attention to it. I know, that was really disappointing. You'd think with how they chant the beginning when they actually do win, someone would pick up on it. Maybe that just shows you how lacking the current version of We're Flying High is. Or maybe you're just yelling into an empty void. No, Eagles fans exist. The membership base is large. Maybe they just don't like you. Shrug. Who's next? Good question. Let's spin the wheel once more. Okay, the first third of this episode is going to be obscenely long. It's Cats time. The Cats have had an up and down season. They got consecutive wins in rounds three and four, but hadn't done that again until these past three games. That win against the Bulldogs this past round was a real grinding out. They did mostly without Tom Stewart. They managed to hold on, showed some of their defensive depth there, and their midfield played way above their pay grade. It was a really good outlasting of the Bulldogs to put them up to 8-4. and four. They're currently in fourth place. I will note that with this being the buy rounds, the ladder is a little bit skewed right now. Fifth and seventh are 8-3. and three. So really, you could put them anywhere between fourth and seventh, all things considered, which I think is a realistic finishing target for this team, somewhere between fourth and seventh. On the positive side this year, there's 
been a lot, actually, between Tom Stewart really cementing himself as a top defenseman, Sam DeConing now adding to that and showing when Stewart went out last week that he's not just thriving because he gets to play next to Tom Stewart. He does a lot of it on his own. Even Zach Guthrie's become a really good defender lately, which has been great to see because he was clearly miscast as a midfielder, as we've learned now. I would say negatives defensively, Jake Kolajashny has not had a great year, though he does have two goals. His instincts at times have not been great. He's had moments where, you know, he's tried to mark a ball instead of punch it out or vice versa. Needs to improve on that. Zach, too, he's done a pretty nice job. His ability to play all over the ground is what makes him so fun. He is officially a defender, but he can move up and kick some goals. He obviously has the incredible torp ability. But what's really stood out to me this year for Tui is his ability to slip out of tackles. Also, he's just an incredibly nice person. He's great. I told you he would give Bailey Smith his wallet back. It's not my wallet. I would like to see a little bit more out of Mark O'Connor in the second half of the season. He was great tagging Lockie Neal way back in round four against the Lions. Since then, hasn't done a ton. Ford Group's been awesome, obviously, Tom Hawkins and Jeremy Cameron, we talked just the other day about how they're able to accommodate each other. One doesn't overshadow the other. They have an understanding of when the other's on and when to take charge. Tyson Stengel's established himself really nicely as a goal sneak. He's had a couple of quieter games here and there against the Swans. He didn't do a ton. And then this past round against the Bulldogs, he didn't do much. But I've really liked what he's contributed overall. He's clearly got great instincts. And he's pretty quick, and he's actually a pretty good tackler despite being a smaller guy. Speaking of good tacklers, it's amazing how Brian Myers has resurrected his season after really struggling when he came back from syndesmosis surgery. It looked for a stretch like he was due to be left out of the team. He was managed one week, and then he came in as the injury sub. And in his last two games heading into the bye, he has a three-goal performance. And then in that win over the Bulldogs, when Stewart went down, he moonlighted in a defensive role, not only showing off the speed and tackling ability, but actually spoiling a few balls as well. And he was always in the right place on the ground, too, which for a forward who's played some midfield but has never played as a defender, that was awesome. I think the coaches have started to figure out different ways they can deploy him because With Tyson Stengel there, you're not just going to deploy Myers in a goal sneak role. I mean, Myers has still shown his capability as a goal sneak. His three-goal performance against Adelaide showed some of that. It's just difficult to place him with the way he kicks. I think if he is able to add some straighter kicks to his arsenal, I think that will help him a lot. Maybe that's something that Eddie could help him with, because Eddie has clearly helped Tyson Stengel. And I can see some of the effects especially with some of his runs toward the goal, just kind of sneaking behind players when the midfielders are are already on the ball. He hasn't ever been really a suspect guy to really mark the whole time. So when he gets in the pocket, it's not like there's a huge concern a lot of the time. I think some defenders have started to take notice though in recent rounds. So time for Tyson and Eddie to work on some one-on-one stuff. You can tell that Eddie's work with Tyson and Myers has paid off. Myers even kicked a goal with his left foot recently. Wasn't a pretty kick, but it was a goal. You can see his confidence growing again. And I think people are starting to remember just how good he can be. In 2019 and 2020, he was a damn good player. I am still not convinced that he's in their best 22. I think it's going to be really hard for Myers to retain a spot once everybody's healthy. I mean, still a pretty extensive injury list for the Cats. You're looking at trying to make room for guys like Dangerfield, Max Holmes, 
Sam Menegola. Listen to how I'm saying that. BT Menegola. Menegola. Oh, God. But in most teams, he would have no trouble making the best 22. This is a good sign of where the Caps are. Unfortunately, if this team has a weakness, it's in the midfield and... That may have just been deep in some with the news that Brandon Parfit's going to be out for about a month with a broken hand. Parfit was incredible in round one against Essendon. Then had gone pretty quiet for a while. Throughout this three-game winning streak, he's been really solid again. Through the first six or so weeks, Brad Close was incredible. Teams have learned how to match up with him some since. I've said just about every week that there's no reason to ever play him as a half-forward or full-forward. Stick him in the midfield or even towards the back of it because he can start play up in the other direction. Sort of a slingshot type role, I like to use that term. And I don't know if there's a stat to see, you know, what percentage of a player's touches turn into score involvements or something of that sort. Could probably ask Swamp. But it seems like he's one of those guys where when he touches the ball, the Cats score. If you get him touching the ball somewhere towards the back of the center square, and then have him run forward, handball it off to someone else. Good things happen every single time. And it's not like he's a huge ground gainer himself. He can definitely run, but he's not someone that you typically see, you know, near the top of the meters gained board. And that's a testament to his vision and being able to make the right connections in those situations. Additionally, the ground he does pick up, he picks up really quickly because he can fly. In the last few weeks, Cam Guthrie has really started to come into his own after just kind of accumulating stats but not doing a ton earlier in the season. I think he's been playing better lately. But look, this midfield still most weeks has not stacked up against the best of the best. That's what was so encouraging about the win over the Bulldogs was they actually did. After weeks where they've gotten crushed in the center circle, Reese Stanley came back healthy and at least within that circle outplayed Tim English. Mark Blitzovs was able to play as a second ruck, which allows him to really show off the athleticism in the defensive 50. I don't think the players in this midfield are bad. I think Luke Dollhouse should be the injury sub whenever possible because he's thrived in his appearances in that role. I'm not big on Sean Higgins. He's had maybe one positive game this year. He hasn't played a ton lately. Francis Evans has only played in wins to start his career, but there's a reason he's been a sporadic selection. I don't know if this midfield has enough. I hope it does. I'd love to see some of the leadership stuff from Selwood kind of supersede the fact that physically he's beyond his best days. Same for Dangerfield. I mean, they're both still quality players, but it's clear that they're not what they once were. That said, when it comes to Selwood, I love what he does. His tackling ability, his instincts are really good. And I can see why fans love him so much. And I can only imagine how fun it must have been to watch him during his best years because he's a hell of a player. But can that midfield match up with the Clayton Olivers? Could that midfield match up with an Andrew Brayshaw? Didn't the first time. One other interesting thing I've noticed about this team, they haven't played in a game yet that's come down to the final seconds. They've played in a lot of exciting games within the two-goal margin. Fremantle technically was a three-point loss, but they were down more than that for most of the fourth quarter. There haven't been quite as many games with that late drama that you had last year. You know, it was a team with two after the siren finishes, games against Brisbane and Sydney and Hawthorne that came down to the final moments. I appreciate that there hasn't been quite as much stress, but there have been a lot of swings, been chaotic. But the aftermath of this Bulldogs win has me 
very encouraged. And unlike last year, I think the coaching staff has done a really nice job for the most part this season. I thought the Hawthorne game was not very well coached. I thought they didn't adjust at all against St. Kilda. But overall this year, they've had a much better sense of where to deploy guys, how to play to their players' strengths, and they're doing more to coach to the players' strengths instead of try to have the players fit the system. I think Chris Scott realized the differences between the 2021 team and the 2020 team. Those differences were pretty dramatic, and he's really starting to be able to cater to the younger players. And that's showing not just on the longer and narrower ground at Cardinia Park. It seems like the system he has is more widely applicable. And that's going to be necessary in the finals when you're likely not going to have any games at the Cattery, which is a shame. And hopefully once they get the expansion done, they get around 40,000 there. They could host their own, at least maybe in the first round of things. But I think they have put themselves in a good position to at least make a finals They should have 12 easy points post-buy with two matchups against the Eagles, rounds 14 and 23, and then North round 16. They got Richmond sandwiched between West Coast and North there in round 15, and I think that's a matchup of a couple teams that are right about on on par with each other in terms of overall skill level, so I think that'll be a really good indicator of what's to come for them. But their stretch between round 17 and at least 21 is going to be a real test. They got Melbourne in Geelong, Carlton at the G. Then they had two port before hosting the Dogs and Saints. Because of how crowded 4th through 12th is, you're going to hear us talking about make or break stretches a lot. And there are going to be a lot of teams that go up into the 8 one week, down the next perhaps. Who knows how it's going to end up for the Cats, but they have to make those easier games count. I really think this team's floor is around 7th or 8th place. I think a lot would have to go catastrophically wrong to miss the finals. I think a lot would have to go wrong for them to even finish down in eighth, but it's a matter of really home elimination final or get on the road for a qualifying final. And ultimately, this season is still going to be judged based off of what this team does in the finals. I still think they were cut below best of the best. They have beaten the Lions, but it was at home. This win over the Bulldogs makes you think, hmm, maybe the ceiling is a little higher than we thought. I've said repeatedly, high floor, low ceiling. Maybe that ceiling isn't so low. Can they tap into it, though? Now that we're through with our own teams, let's perhaps be more concise and less opinionated. I didn't think I was that biased in mine. Not sure what you think about yours. One way or another, team number three. Well, they had been a focus these past couple rounds because they won close ones. They looked inspired again. It's the red and the white, the Sydney Swans. We were really unsure about them before these last few rounds. They were getting wins, but none of them looked that convincing. It was clear that they weren't playing their best a lot of the time. I mean, the 11-point win over North is a big one. They beat the Eagles by 63 when other teams were ganging up on a big time. When they beat the Hawks, it was because Hawthorne ran out of gas more than the Swans winning it. And some of the Swans fans that I've talked to online have agreed with that, including... I'll mention him again, Donnie Hess from the 4th and Long, another good podcast you should check out. Hopefully, we'll be collaborating with them soon. When they lost to the two Queensland teams round 7 and 8, losing to the Lions even at the SCG was understandable. Losing to the Suns? Not as much. Even with what we know about the Suns now, that was a shocking loss. Especially considering that it was a home loss and a stretch where they were coming off another defeat already. You'd think, all right, they're going to take out their frustrations. They're going to look more like themselves. 
They did not. They got thoroughly outplayed there. Bounce back against Essendon. Lost a really entertaining game to Carlton to open the Sir Doug Nichols rounds. They clawed their way back into that one like a lot of teams did against the Blues. And maybe they took what worked from that and kept it up the next couple weeks in their wins against Richmond and Melbourne. All of a sudden, they're back in the conversation in more ways than one. They're 8-4. and four. They're currently in sixth on the ladder. In terms of the percentage of the eight-win teams, they're third out of four. And with the parity present among a lot of the potential finals teams, those percentages are going to be a big factor. So it's about time we give them more focus. First off, let's note that just like with Geelong, they are ahead of a team that's eight and three, that being Carlton, where they've got a about a six-point percentage advantage. They're behind eight and three St. Kilda, who's in fifth, as well as eight and four Geelong. The Swans are a team that I think at the start of the year, we were kind of in agreement. All right, these guys are legit. They're playing really well. Last year was no fluke. Their young guys don't play like they're young. They've got some experience under their belts, and they're showing that every week. I mean, Errol Golden looks like a legit leader in the midfield, and he's the youngest of that entire group. That group that includes guys like Logan McDonald, Chad Warner, Nick Blakey, Justin McInerney, Brayden Campbell, who's still somewhat of a fringe guy at this point, but will definitely more reliably Crack the 22 and maybe the 18 pretty soon. And how about the McCartan brothers this year? Working amazingly well in sync. Patty is the bigger name because you see him getting the intercepts and also just the story of him coming back from all of his concussion woes to be such an important factor in the success the Swans have had thus far. But I think last round showed us how underrated Tom has been. He is more than capable of winning one-on-one battles on the ground. He stopped Kazi Pickett in his tracks multiple times. And in cutting off some of those angles on the ground and in keeping players out of marking contest, he allows his brother to do the work that he does best. The numbers weren't all that impressive this past round, but it was a very noticeable performance from him. I've really liked his game lately, and we knew their forwards were good. We knew their midfield was good. Their defensive group has taken a great step forward this year. And to see that, in the last couple rounds after they had gone through that lull. Now, I didn't think the Eagles game was anything negative. I thought they took care of business there. They got up big. Who cares if they kind of let their foot off the gas after taking an early 50-point lead? My thought is just got to rack up the percent as much as you can. But some of the negative signs that were there in that North Melbourne game have been there recently as well. Not just in the losses, but remember, it took them a while to get going against Hawthorne. They got down big against Carlton. They were down big against Richmond. Essendon was a redeeming performance, but I thought this past week against the D's was a really convincing showing. When they got in the hole early, it was just a matter of inaccurate kicking. They played a really sound game, and while some of the calls that helped them seal it in the final minutes were suspect, they were the better team. They deserved to win. Holy cow, I didn't even mention James Rowbottom among that younger group. Sam Wicks in there as well. I mean, they have a ridiculous amount of talent between the ages of between the ages of 19 and 25. And just beyond that, you've got Tom Papley and Isaac Heaney. Heaney stepped up big time this past round as well and had a few quiet rounds. I was thinking that he might have been playing through an injury. If so, looks like it might have healed up. And they were distributing the ball really well in that game, recognizing all the forward targets they have. And that, I think, is something that they need to take even more advantage of when Buddy's in. Kind of the the specter of Buddy being this legendary player, this thousand goal kicker, 
he's going to get his chances, but just having him there means that players are not going to have their eyes on the other guys as often. And as frustrating as it might be for Buddy to get fewer opportunities, I think it's going to be better for the Swans in the long run if that's the case. Sam Reed this past week showed his abilities as kind of a Buddy light, but also maybe a more versatile player instead of just being really, really good at taking marks and set shots. He's decent at that, but also able to carry the ball for a while, pick up some ground, and a pretty skilled tackler. And I think if they can find a way to accommodate Reed so that he and Franklin don't kind of step on each other's toes, they could really have something there because the conventional way to deploy him isn't going to work when you already have one of the best in that role in that exact spot. It's just too crowded there. I was not a big fan of Peter Laddams, and he had struggled some coming back from his injury, but he's really rounded into form and played well in the last few weeks, especially against Richmond, where I thought Toby Curvis was just going to crush him. And in the last couple of weeks, they've also been without Tom Hickey at times. Hickey's been battling with a toe injury, and that's pressed Laddams into an even more important role. Sam Reed has sometimes been that support, but he's not a natural ruck. Laddams has needed to be at his best for the Swans to win some of their games, and he has been. And when Hickey can come back healthy, that's going to be a really formidable tandem. We preach the value of a strong second ruck often, and Laddams looks more than that, even if he isn't the biggest of them. I do have a question regarding the Swans' recent form. They've needed a lot of late comebacks. Obviously, the comebacks reflect well on John Longmire's coaching. There's no questioning that. I think he and Justin Longmuir are easily the two best at adjusting beyond halftime. Brett Ratton's been up there this year, too, might I add. What I want to ask, though, are these comebacks a great sign of the team overall, or is the fact that they get into these big holes a huge concern? You know, are other teams going to start to be able to anticipate adjustments more and finish games off? Or what's this going to turn into? Because I don't think one way or another they're going to continue with a bunch of late comebacks, either they're going to play better throughout the game or they're going to play worse throughout. Which is it going to be? I think some teams have been able to figure out how to avoid targeting Patty McCartan's contests early, and that's been opening up things a lot for their opposition. I think that's where Tom has to come in and play better. I think that's where Dane Ramby has to be better. He's been a good second half player, a great fourth quarter player. When he's been called upon in key situations, I think as of late, he's generally been better, been more consistent throughout games, and that's going to need to be the case. I mean, it's great that they're able to come back like that, but I agree with you. I don't think it's going to take them super far if they have to keep doing that. They've been doing it against good teams, though, so maybe that's something to say about their conditioning as well, that they've had this run going the whole way, but it's not sustainable. Going out of the bye, they've got a really big game against Port in Adelaide. I think that game is going to be a bellwether for them in terms of what can they do to put the hurt on opponents early in high leverage games. Of their final 10 games, it's a pretty strange mix. They play all four teams ranked 14th through 17th. That includes the home leg of the Sydney Derby in round 20. But they've also got some really difficult games that could shape the finals picture. I'm looking at not just that Port Adelaide game, but playing St. Kilda twice. They host the Bulldogs for a round 17 rematch. They travel to Frio in round 18. Collingwood in round 22 should be a really important game one way or another. I think there's a window there for the Swans to make a push for a top four spot. I think there's still a reality in which they could find themselves 
grappling in the final rounds to even get in, because as we've established, there are at least nine, maybe as many as 12 teams fighting for a final spot. Credit to them for getting the job done against Richmond and Melbourne these past couple rounds when they haven't had a couple key pieces. With Buddy back in after the bye, with Hickey back in as well, I think we'll see the Swans with the list that we'd expect to see in September. One other thing I want to mention before we move on, I noted early in the season, I think it was actually when they beat Geelong, just how much I like Nick Blakey and how anytime he started to play, good things happened. Within the few weeks following that, the rest of the league started to figure that out as well. And his game planned around stopping him out of the back half, which I think is the ultimate sign of respect when other teams know you're good and have to start game planning for you. I think Longmire realizing that is part of why he ended up putting Callum Mills further back in the second half of the Richmond game, and that worked out splendidly. He should keep doing that. Surprised we hadn't talked about Mills at all until the very end just tells you what kind of individual talents there are on this Swans list. I think it also has something to do with the concept that I mentioned during our round 12 recap, talking about known quantities versus surprises. I think I actually made that reference describing the McCartan brothers saying how, you know, Patty's going to be great. What Tom did in this past game was the pleasant surprise. Whereas, for example, Callum Mills, at this point, he's a known quantity. We all know he's good. There isn't a ton to say about it, but we're not taking him for granted either. So don't get that twisted. Pleasant surprises are going to need to be key. And going back to that whole idea of the specter of Buddy, the other good kicks aren't pleasant surprises, but they're going to be more surprising targets, I think, with Buddy back in. And if the coaching staff realizes that, I think they'll put the Swans in a position to challenge for that top four spot. Not saying they'll get there. I see them around sixth or seventh when it's all said and done, but it's going to be those small adjustments like that that are going to be the difference probably between them getting a home or away final that first week. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Don't forget, as always, you can find our thoughts on Twitter at Americans Footy if you want instant reactions and commentary. You can find me individually at Castle Media. You can find me at BenjaminHK01. And you can find Brian Harambe, the footy cat, somewhere in this house at the moment, and at Cat Named Brian on Instagram. We're probably much more than halfway through this episode, but we've gone through three teams, so that's the halfway point for us. Spinning the wheel for the fourth time now. We've talked a whole lot about the Gold Coast Suns as of late. I don't think anyone expected them to be at 500 at this point, especially without Ben King for the entire season. But I've nearly forgotten about the fact that they've been without Ben King. Their additions at key forward have shown really well, particularly Mabiorchul, who's been remarkably consistent in his goal kicking. He's one of the few players to have gotten a goal every round. Levi Kasbolt started off hot, hasn't been as prominent as of late, but hasn't been as much of a factor. And that's because they found scoring from some of their younger players as well. We highlighted Malcolm Roses Jr. and Joel Jeffrey as products of their Northern Territory Academy zone. Their offensive output is continuing among 
many others. The broadcasters clearly love watching Joel Jeffrey. He's fun. There's a reason he's been nominated for Goal of the Week twice already. And they've been performing well, even with us questioning how Matt Rowell has been used. He's been in a follower role for much of the season, hasn't gotten nearly as much of the ball. He's a great tackler, but the whole time I was thinking that he needs to get more touches. He did last week. It seemed like the coaches finally unleashed him and just let him play more freely, and it worked really well. Hopefully that'll keep up against tougher competition than North. Having said that, Noah Anderson has also played better this year, and I think that's allowed Rao to focus more on tackling. At the same time, when you've got a talent like Rao, you let him use all the skills he's got. But between Rao, Anderson, Tuke Miller, they've had a couple mids at least playing well pretty much every game, and that's been a big driver of some of their success. But as of late, especially on this run when they've won four or five heading into the bye, it's been their defense that stepped up. If you had told me at the start of the year where the Suns would be now, I wouldn't have been that shocked by them being at 500. I would have thought it was realistic, albeit above what I would expect. I think it would be within the realm of reasonable expectations, just on the more optimistic end of that spectrum. How they've done it the last few weeks has been really fun, though, because after the Q-Clash blowout, we were sitting there thinking, all right, same old sons. This is who they are. There's a lot of talent there. It's not being used well. There are games where they just run out of gas or give up and just get blown out, and it happens far too often. And since then, they've won four or five, and that one loss, they didn't play poorly. The Bulldogs just played really well. You can only really look at Two games this year against the Giants and Lions where the Suns really just got stunk. The other four losses, they played all right. In fact, they really represented themselves well in that round two loss to the Ds. But it's how they've gotten to this point that's so interesting. I think the coaches are finally figuring something out with how to utilize some of these guys. Getting Caleb Graham into the lineup and anchoring the defense with him on the back has really allowed some of the other guys to move around. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to watch Lockie Weller move around because he tore his ACL and is done for the year. But they've had a lot of different guys step up defensively, whether it's Sam Collins, Will Powell, Sean Lemons. It's been fun. It's been a different player more often than not. Last week, Alex Davies had a really good game. And with how he moves, maybe he could be, and with his speed, maybe he could be a guy that takes some of the time on the wings. You were saying Davies, I was saying Rao, maybe having those two trade off there could work. We knew Tuke Miller's good. He's just further cemented that role. We knew Isaac Rankin's good. He's confirmed that. Took a bit of time for him, though. Ended up being placed in half back a couple rounds before he found his form again. He's been really good lately. It's also been really cool to see Mobby Orchol really find himself at home with the Suns. He's a fun player to watch. We already alluded to his consistency kicking for goal, and he provides a physical matchup that gives teams problems when you have that one big intercept defender. It's kind of like a reverse tagging role where Chol is able to try to neutralize that guy and put him in a one-on-one matchup instead of kind of a broader sweeping role. And it's not going to be for quite some time before he sees Tom Stewart. That doesn't happen until round 22, and for that to happen, both players would obviously need to be healthy. But that's another case where he can match up with a top defender, make him into a one-on-one defender instead of letting him roam around. It's kind of like some deep threat wide receivers do in the NFL. Maybe they're not going to torch you every time, 
but they're going to command attention that in turn is going to open up holes for someone else. Um, oh, who was the defensive player that you really liked? I talked about Caleb Graham already. You did? Yes. All right. Um, I, I'd say that I would say that going into this season, their known quantities were in the middle of the ground with that mix of midfielders and also Jared Witts. It's only now that I'm understanding just how impactful Witts is and how much the Suns missed him last year. He is one of the premier Ruckmen in the AFL, and if he were on any other team, he would get a lot more focus. And his work in hitouts, getting them to advantage, has been able to spring Miller, Anderson, Rao, whoever it's been, forward to do their best work in turn. And heck, Choll's been all right as a second Ruck himself when Wits is needed to spell on the sidelines. I've liked how the Suns coaching staff has deployed players in the last couple weeks. Will that continue? And if it does, will they be able to adjust? Because the league's going to pick up on it. The league's going to adjust. Can the Suns counter those adjustments? One other thing I want to note, Stuart Dew might be the sweatiest coach in the entire league. It was clearly very hot in the interview room in Darwin because that was completely drenched. He couldn't wait to get into a room with better air conditioning, and I couldn't blame him. I mean, he's been sweating for his job all year. And if the Suns can actually make the finals, there's a chance for him to keep it. But if they disappoint, you know that the league probably wants him to get Alistair Clarkson as much as anyone. And with the promise that this team has shown, maybe Clarko is, in fact, interested. What if they finish, like, ninth or 10th? Encouraging, but not a finals berth. What do they do then? If Clarkson is on the table, I think they would take the gamble. Thing is, they've played a tougher schedule thus far than just about anyone. I mentioned this last episode when we were recapping Gold Coast's win over North this past round. They have more games against the bottom part of the ladder than anyone else post by. They've got five games left against the bottom six. They've got Adelaide round 14, Essendon round 18, West Coast 20, in Tasmania for Hawthorne round 21, and at North Melbourne round 23. Hawthorne can be a questionable one because the Hawks tend to play better in Tasmania, but the Suns have shown their capabilities on a long ground against Hawthorne. That said, there's no way Hawthorne plays that poorly a second time against them. You know, clunkers happen. I can't imagine them having a second clunker against the same opponent. But those games against the Crows and Eagles in particular, those should be easier ones, especially because they're at home. Should be able to take care of Essendon still, I think, as well as North. They've got to get those and more if they're going to make finals. That would put them up. If they get those five, they're at 11, and I don't think that's enough. You might need 13 this year to make finals. But it's there for the taking, I say. Two teams left. Let's spin the wheel one last time. Well, both teams left are some shade of blue with red accents. It's a matter of, is it the team that might get into the finals or the team that certainly won't? And it's the former. Western Bulldogs. All right. The Bulldogs currently sit at 6-6 six and six in ninth place, heading into their bye, coming off the loss to Geelong last week, in which they got off to a terrible start. But even so, they've won three of their last four. They've dealt with some injury issues. Remember, at one point, this team was 3-5, and five, coming off of a pretty lackluster performance at Port Adelaide. They have a blowout loss to the Tigers a one-point loss against the Crows out in Ballarat where they couldn't kick straight. Other than the Swans, they've yet to really pick up a big win. 
And that was when they were kicking super inaccurately as well. So if there's a positive from that, it's that they had a whole bunch of chances. And that's been something that's been going for them a decent amount this season. That was the case with their game against Geelong as well, even though they ended up with fewer set shots. I think they had more meaningful possessions in the forward half, and they just couldn't make the right connections going into or inside 50. I will say they did have that dominant showing against Collingwood, though I wouldn't quite call that a marquee win. It's a good win, not a great win. But this team has struggled to find traction at times, even with a loaded midfield. I think it's fair to question their coaching. It's fair to question if there was some sort of hangover from the grand final loss. In the prior four seasons, two of the teams that lost the grand final failed to make it back to the finals the next year. But I don't think there's too much need to panic at this point, even with the margin for error kind of being swallowed away. Playing the grand final rematch round one was a tough draw. Getting Carlton when they were coming so hot out of the gate, difficult situation. That said, this is a team that hasn't done particularly well against top competition. Against teams that are currently in the top 10, they're two and four. And if you're going to have any sort of final success, you've obviously got to be better than that. Now, they will have some chances to do so in the second half. But before we really get into looking at their schedule... I want to talk about some of the individual pieces so far. Obviously, Bailey Smith's been good, though he's going to be out the next two games with that suspension, even though if it had gone to trial, I'm sure Zach Tui would have campaigned for that suspension to be lessened while also giving Bailey Smith his wallet back. Adam Trelor has really rounded into shape over the last few weeks. He got off to a bit of a quiet start this year, and I'd say since the Collingwood game, he's been on a different level. I think... Part of what's allowed him to be more prominent was also Bottom Pelly being moved to full forward. It hasn't exactly been a super natural fit for Bont at times, and he's still taking center square contests. But I think him spending more time there has allowed Trelore to play a more natural game. It's allowed Jack McRae to do more of that as well. Baz has been doing his signature long kicks. And as weird as it is to have a consistent top Brownlow vote getter switch positions, it's opened up opportunities for everybody else to do so. So I think that was a good stroke of coaching. My questions lie more in terms of list management, as I discussed in the recap last round about needing a true second ruck in there to help lighten Tim English's workload and getting greater consistency at full forward Josh Bruce might be back in the VFL as soon as the next couple rounds, but they need more consistent targets. Cody Waitman hasn't been at his best, and he's been more in the news for trying to flop his way to freeze than actually kicking well. Aaron Dalton hasn't been particularly accurate. They need more people to round to form there, whether it's newer or older faces. Granted, there have been some things that the coaches maybe weren't able to necessarily anticipate, like Stefan Martin really falling off. They made up for that with Jordan Sweet as the second ruck, though. When it comes to full forward, they've kind of deployed Buku Thomas in a few different spots, and I think he's got the tools to be a really good player and create matchup problems. But the bigger issue has been finding consistent reps for Jamara Hagen, who's finally had a sense of consistency the last few weeks in the VFL. Josh Shackey getting pulled out of the lineup at surprising times where it seems like he's not getting rewarded for good performances or punished for bad performances. There doesn't really seem to be any sort of correlation with when he goes in and out. Is it a matchup thing then? I don't know because it's not like there are any obvious matchups that they seem to be 
addressing, especially with English back in, his height becomes less of a reason to keep him in. Other individuals, though, that have been positive, Caleb Daniel got off to a really slow start this year and has picked it up as of late. Ed Richards got off to a nice start, has slowed up a little, but done a nice job overall. Josh Dunkley is severely underrated because it's such a crowded midfield group. Bailey Dale, you mentioned him briefly, has had a really nice year. And it's awesome to see Mitch Wallace back. He's mostly been in a medical sub role, but he's done a nice job just earning his way back in and cementing a spot for him. If not in their best 22, then at least somewhere between the 23rd to 27th best guy on a pretty good team. Now, with weaknesses, already alluded to Stefan Martin, I think Ryan Gardner and Bailey Williams have gotten exposed at times, and there are definitely some holes to patch up. And my biggest criticism here is I don't see this team doing enough to adjust. I do want to mention real quickly, you've talked about Aaron Naughton struggling to kick at times. I still think he's got one of the highest ceilings of any player, not just on this team, but around the league. And when he's going, he's just about unstoppable. But we've seen him get shut down at times, including this past week by one Sam DeConing. I get the frustration from Dogs fans in considering moving him further back. His marking skills could lend him to being a good defender. But I agree with you on the ceiling being ridiculously high for him. With how prominent Naughton's been since we started watching I didn't realize until I was going through rosters before this season started, he's only 22. So yeah, that ceiling is pretty damn high still. Their remaining 10 games are not easy. We've alluded to this before, but playing GWS and Hawthorne twice, actually it's going to be GWS in rounds 14 and 22, Hawthorne in rounds 15 and 23. They're going to need to pick up points there, and those aren't going to be easy, considering how well the Giants have played since the coaching change, how unpredictable the Hawks are week in and week out, and with the knowledge that the Hawks seem to play better against better teams, largely. And then you look at those six rounds in between those repeat matchups, 16 to 21. Oh, not much. You go to the GABA. You go to the SCG. St. Kilda and Melbourne at home. You go to Cardinia Park. You host Frio. They've played the easier part of their schedule at this point, the Bulldogs. And they haven't necessarily taken care of the teams that they needed to when they got them at opportune times. We said how difficult the hand they got dealt with the first two rounds was, but they got Richmond in round four when the Tigers were scuffling. Didn't take advantage of that. Adelaide in round six. Yes, the Crows did play a really good game defensively, but Dogs did themselves no favors by failing to kick straight. And Port Adelaide, who had yet to really get into a groove. At that point, the Power had two wins, one coming against the Eagles and one coming in a swamp. And it seemed like a good opportunity for the Bulldogs. Yes, they were undone a bit by injuries. Yes, there was no Marcus Bonham-Pally, but they got pretty thoroughly outclassed. So they're not going to be most likely catching teams at opportune times, unless something falls in their favor with opponent injuries. They're going to have to step it up and take on this challenge. The good news is, if they play well heading into finals, they'll come in as one of the hottest teams. They'll be battle-tested. They'll have earned their place there. They'll have all the momentum. But it's not going to be easy to attain. And I think it would be very fair to suggest that when this thing's all said and done, they might just be on the outside looking in. Dale Thomas predicted that right now, seven of the final eight are going to stay in. And the only change is going to be Richmond overtaking Collingwood. So... He doesn't see the Bulldogs cracking it. 
either they're the team you don't want to play in the finals or they're a team you won't have to worry about because they won't make the finals. I can't see them backing in. Who's Miles Bridges play for the Suns? Uh, I Charlotte. Yeah, well, ah, and they got a, and they all got a new coach. We'll gratuitously spin the wheel one last time with this one, but one team that will definitely be on the outside looking in come finals time, unless the entire AFL turns upside down, is the Adelaide Crows. Going into this season, I thought the Crows had potential to be better than they were last year, more consistent than they were last year. If anything, as of late, they've been more consistent in underperforming. They started off the season with a home showing that looks increasingly good, only losing by one to Fremantle. They lost to Collingwood pretty handily in round two. Then the showdown happened, and it definitely changed some people's tone about the Crows after they won on Jordan Dawson's My Heart Will Go On Inducing After the Siren Goal. From rounds three to six, they won three of four, including another really good win against the Tigers. Since barely getting by the Bulldogs in Ballarat, they lost their next four before only getting by the Eagles by 31 and getting outplayed in the second half. All in all, it puts them at four and eight. They are in 14th place and really just feels like same old, same old. One of the questions I wanted to ask was just how much progress have they made? Obviously, you don't think they've made a ton. I do think their forward group looks pretty good at this point between Ned McHenry, Shane McAdam, Darcy Fogarty's been good as of late. We like Riley Philthorpe. Elliot Hamelberg shown flashes before cooling off. He's been down in the twos a lot lately, and you hadn't even mentioned Tex up to this point. Maybe just because he's a given? I was actually going to say, if Taylor Walker leaves at the end of this year, which is rumored as a possibility, they're not going to be completely lost in the forward group. Their issues are much more defensively. Midfield, they've been all right, not great. Ben Keyes has done a nice job. Rory Laird also. The two of them have been clearance workhorses. Obviously, Rory Sloan's injury doesn't help matters at all. But defensively, where do you go? Tom Duday has moments every few weeks, but they don't happen that often. Billy Frampton and Jordan Butts have had their moments as well. I would say that maybe Butts puts up good performances most consistently out of the three, but none of them are ridiculously reliable. It all clicked for them in that win over Richmond, and it hasn't since. I will say Brody Smith at times has done all right. He's listed as a defender, but he can play up the ground some. Mitchell Hinge of the more stay-at-home defenders I like, and I wouldn't even really classify Jordan Dawson as a defender. I see him as more of like a midfield defender hybrid. He does do a really good job getting the ball out. They don't struggle with forward pressure. I think that's one of the reasons they kept Fremantle so close. Dawson can run like crazy. He's one of the better ball-moving defensemen. Even if he doesn't do a ton of, you know, tagging, defensive marking, he's able to engineer a lot of play forward, and he's definitely been one of the biggest pluses for this team, moving into a focal role, not just because of the the after-the-siren goal, but because he's really been a good all-around player. I think the goal put him on the radar, got a lot of attention to him, and since then, people have been able to look at him and evaluate him and see, yeah, this guy's pretty good. Looking at other potential ball-moving defenders... Last round saw the debut of Patrick Parnell, a very small defenseman, but one who got himself in on-ball contests a lot, looked good, moving the ball to, to cleaner areas. Would love to see him continue to make progress. Hopefully his cork thigh doesn't keep him out for too long because 
you got to be looking ahead with this team. I do think overall they're trending in the right direction. They've moved beyond rock bottom. Question is, how high is their ceiling? And unless they really shake things up defensively and bring in some guys that can really move the needle, I don't know if that ceiling is all that high. That said, they're not married to the old guard. They're willing to let the young guys play. Nobody's roster spot has been safe. And I think they're handling this in the right way. They're not really letting anyone take any sort of entitlement. The way I think of it is Matthew Nixon's staff are anti-complacency. You got to keep earning your spot. Even if you have a big game one week, if you're off the next, you could be at risk. Elliot Hilberg had a few great games in a row. He's been in the sandful as of late. What I do like is they responded to that Collingwood loss really well. And even that stretch of five losses in a row, there were a couple of decent performances in there. They played a good first half against the Lions. And up until the final five minutes, played really well against the Saints. But they've still had four games where they've gotten beaten pretty soundly. Three of those are on the road. And then, I guess for some reason, GWS just plays lights out at the Adelaide Oval. What what do you want to see from this team in the second half to really indicate that they're moving forward? Firstly, I want some more definition in where they see their future in the Ruck. It's been confusing seeing how they've been negotiating between Riley O'Brien and Kieran Strawn. It isn't helped by the fact that Rory Sloan's been out. He tore his ACL in the middle of a really good performance in that Richmond win round five. And since O'Brien had gotten most of the time, then it was Strawn. And I think they're still trying to negotiate how to split up the time between them. And then you also got to factor in Riley Philthorpe in that mix too. We both really like what we've seen from Philthorpe. Hasn't gotten as much of a chance this year, but I'd say that's also partially because of the wealth of targets they have at forward. He doesn't necessarily need to be a key guy, but still like for him to get the ball more. And with how they're learning how to finally spread the ball around in the forward 50, maybe he'll get that chance. With Walker being out round 11 against the Cats, we start to see them distribute things a bit more evenly. Darcy Fogarty was the main target there. And he isn't a bad main target to have. He's a very accurate kick. But you've got Shane McAdam in there. You'll probably have Josh Rochelle again soon. You can add Phil Thorpe into that. You can add Elliot Himmelberg back in. You can point out a hot hand among that group, but you don't just go to that hot hand. That Even if it's the guy that's been so reliable for you for years in Tex. We know where they're going to need to make additions via trades, via signings. I think the thing that works against them is... Outside of Jason Horn Francis, they haven't had a huge pool of players from South Australia to draw from. I know there's already been rumors about Horn Francis being unhappy at North. Maybe he'll request a trade to go back home. But unlike the teams in the West, the South Australian clubs don't have quite as big a local talent pool. There's some good players out of that area, but just from a sheer numbers standpoint, from a sheer population standpoint, They don't have that advantage. The Adelaide metro area is pretty small, relatively speaking, and the rest of South Australia is not largely populated at all. Dawson happened to be one of them. Who knows which club Horn Francis would want to end up at? Probably Port with how they're currently going. Can't have any indication one way or another of where he'd go, though, because turns out he's actually a Frio fan. Interesting. Yeah, really interesting for a guy from South Australia, but but that's how it is. He's a huge Nat 5 fan. I'd say the general observation with the Crows, though, even with this recent losing streak that only ended against the worst team in the league, they're progressing. 
I think they're just progressing a little bit slower than we would like. And if they can put up some good showings in the second half, not just beating the likes of North and West Coast, but hopefully pulling out a couple games against better teams down the stretch, it would really lead you to think this isn't just a team that starts the season hot and then really runs out of gas. Because remember, they were 3-3. Three and three. That remaining schedule, by the way, they'll be on the road to face both Gold Coast and North out of the bye. They host the D's round 16. They've got a decent amount of chances to play spoiler and affect the finals race, hosting Collingwood round 18. They visit Sydney. They host Carlton. They finish the season as the away team for Showdown 52. So we won't be ignoring them. I just hope they're able to keep those games competitive and give us reasons to watch. And hopefully they do that not just at home. I'd love to see them go out on the road and create some havoc, whether that be at Metricon, the SCG. The Hawthorne game is a rare Hawks home game with Marvel in round 17. That's another chance to create some havoc, although we're not expecting the Hawks to be a finals team, obviously. Still, there are signs of growth for the Crows, and I just want to see more of those in the second half because two straight years, those signs have come much more early rather than late. And that brings us to the end of our progress reports for the 16s with buys in round 13. We spent a lot of time talking about our teams in the first half, but we hope that we were similarly informative in our less partial observances later on. Next up for us, we got the round 13 preview. That'll be coming your way American Wednesday, Australian Thursday. A good deal before the footy starts that night. And we've got a heck of an opener for that round between Richmond and Port, but we're going to leave the discussion of that for that next episode. We'll probably have some thoughts between now and then regardless, and those will be on Twitter at Americans Footy. I might chime in as well on some Eagles matters at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. You can find me at Castle Media, and you can find Brian Harambe, who's currently rattling the door trying to get in. Maybe that picked up in the background. You can find him on Instagram at CatNamedGrian. Be sure to tune in there and see the video of him sliding across the sheets on my bed. That's basically it. I'm not going to try to sit here for a while drawing up a creative way to sign off, so uh, bye. Bye. Bye.